Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today we are going to be doing a solo episode. So for this episode, I had a couple listener questions, topics kind of come floating in over the last couple of weeks. They're sort of multi-part, so I stuck to two for this one. If you're interested in a topic or a specific question for this show, or just interested in my take on a specific thing, feel free to shoot those my way. You can do that in a variety of different modes. The quickest, easiest, most direct is probably through the show web or through the show email address, which is just hpopodcast at gmail.com. So if you want to send over a question through there, you can. I oftentimes will put up a post on Twitter recruiting questions. So if you see that pop up, or if you follow me on Twitter, you're more likely to see that pop up and you can just drop them in the comments there or just shoot me a note through messages on any of the social media platforms that I am on. And I will add it to the list and we'll work through them as we do these, these solo episodes. For those of you interested in the guest interview shows, I have a few in the hopper right now that uh, we'll be releasing over the course of the next month or so. They include Aaron Alexander, who is a movement specialist. He's worked with uh, names like Toby McGuire and Gerard Butler. So he comes back on for a second appearance on the show. We did that one in person. Aaron's local to Austin. So he was able to come over and record that one, which which is always fun. We can do the the in-person interviews. Uh, Also, we have Dr. Ethan Weiss, who is a cardiologist who also follows a low carbohydrate diet himself and is really kind of deep into that world. His version is a little bit more kind of a Mediterranean based kind of low carbohydrate approach. So it may look a little different than some of the other iterations of that. I really like talking to folks who kind of have these different styles of developing a low carbohydrate approach or even a ketogenic approach at times, because I think it highlights the amount of options you actually have within that context, which can oftentimes get lost in translation when we start looking at different types of ways of eating and dietary patterns and things like that. So uh, Dr. Weiss was a fun one to have on. I also have a a friend, Nick Curry came on the show. Nick had a amazing season last year in 2021. I think he ran 11 races or something like that, won most of them, (laughs) and then ended the year with an American record at the 24-hour distance, which is just how far can you run in 24 hours. And Nick clocked in about 173 miles in that time frame. So I had him come on the show to talk about just why he raced so much, what the strategy was behind that. He's been really vocal about kind of the pacing strategy behind ultra marathoning, which I think is something that could really help people improve their finishing times. If they take a little more time thinking about how they pace, especially in the early stages of these longer events, Nick has really fine tuned a negative split approach, which you don't see very often at all in ultra running. But I do think there's a lot of application for it. And even if you don't come away thinking, Hey, I need to start negative splitting my hundred mile races. You might come away thinking at least making some adjustments on how you kind of attack the early portions of these courses. Nick also touched on some of the different dietary patterns he used has used for ultra marathoning. I I like talking to Nick about this particular topic because he has used a variety of different approaches from kind of high carbohydrate to low carbohydrate structured them differently and things like that. So he touches on kind of his experience within 
those N of one experiences and his own training, recovery, racing, et cetera. So those are, are all up on the show Patreon page. For those of you who want to get to them before I release them to the public, the show Patreon page also offers ad-free audio. So we get right to the topic at hand. If those things are interesting to you and you'd like to support the show, you can sign up for the show Patreon page. Links are in the bio. The landing page for the show that has links to the Patreon page is at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO. If Patreon is not your thing, but you'd like to support the show monetarily, you can also contribute with one-time donations at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO. If you'd like to help out non-monetarily, there are some great options. Liking, sharing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast listening platform is a great way. Also, giving the show a review on your podcast platform also helps the show grow. Another option to support the show is through the show sponsors. If they have a product that you'd like to try out, letting them know you came through here is a great way of supporting the show. This episode sponsors include Bioptimizers and their product Magnesium Breakthrough. Magnesium Breakthrough has updated their magnesium supplement to include cofactors like B6 and manganese to help with absorption of the magnesium. This now comes with their seven unique forms of organic full spectrum magnesium, which can help with things like sleep improvement, stress reduction, and a sense of calm. If you need to add some extra magnesium into your diet, simply take two capsules before you go to bed and see what happens. Bioptimizers continues to offer its impressive 365 day money back guarantee, so you can test it out risk free. If interested, let them know you came from HPOs by going to magbreakthrough.com forward slash human. And don't forget to use the promo code HUMAN10, that's H-U-M-A-N-1-0, for 10% off your next order. Also supporting this episode is Ice Barrel. Ice Barrel makes a sleek, compact, easy-to-use cold water immersion product, so you can experience the benefits of cold therapy from the convenience of your home even if you don't have a lot of extra space. It is also easy to transport compared to most static cold water immersion options. So if you want to set up for a group offsite, the ice barrel is a great option. Personally, I recently started using it in my backyard and I like to fill it up with water and I keep a couple freezer packs in my freezer that I can just throw in there to bring the cold water down to the temperatures I'm looking to get it to and then jump in. I like to target two to three minutes and get that nice mental clarity and buzz. I like to call it like a little bit of a shot of caffeine almost is what it feels like when you get out. And that's kind of how I use it most of the time. I'll sometimes also use it if I'm blocking workouts, meaning doing something hard in the morning and then going and doing something again in the afternoon. That's my go-to protocol with cold water immersion. If you'd like to check out the ice barrel, you can do so for $125 off. Just head over to icebarrel.com forward slash HPO. That's I-C-E-B-A-R-R-E-L.com forward slash HPO. And it will automatically take $125 off your next order. Or you can enter promo code HPO. That will also get you the discount. All right, let's jump into this show's 
questions. So the first one came in from Alfred Dockery and Alfred asked, I'm training for a 10 mile trail race in October with a goal of coming in under two hours. I'm wondering what kind of speed work or combinations of speed work would be best to prepare for it. Also, what would be a good peak weekly mileage to prepare for the race? Awesome. So this is a kind of a two-part question. One is just like the speed work side of the equation and then like the volume or the peak week. So when I have questions like this, I like to kind of back up a little bit and recommend that you look at your training less about a specific amount of volume or a specific amount of speed work, but sort of combine them so that you're actually measuring the totality of what you're doing to your body. Because ultimately what you want to do when you're preparing for a race is stress your body in a way that is applicable for the activity that you're trying to train for, but then also recover from that and then kind of rinse and repeat. I like to call it micro stressing. So you want to do enough where your body is making adaptations to get better, but not so much, especially in any one given session that it kind of bleeds into your next session and takes future training off the table. So when we're looking at things like a peak training week, that's going to be a combination of the volume that you're able to run as well as the types of workouts that you're doing sub like speed workouts that you're doing within that volume and then the rest and recovery you have between the sessions and that can be anything from blocking individual workouts like the amount of time you spend between like one speed session and your next speed session all the way down to a little more of a, like a, an acute look at it within a specific workout where you're reducing your recovery time between intervals for example, to kind of determine like what your training load actually is. Ultimately, like consistency here is going to be the big mover. You're going to want to be consistent versus trying to be like a hero at any one workout or any one week for that matter, if we're looking at kind of the peak training week. So consistency is going to, going to over overshadow any, any inconsistency plus one kind of big heroic week that you'd be able to kind of execute for whatever reason. Uh, it's also going to be very dependent on you as an individual. So there's some ways I like to kind of go about it when I'm looking at an individual person's potential for a peak training week. I like to look at what their historic peak training week was. So since they became a runner, what is like the biggest training week or biggest kind of like peak that they've done in the past? And then also look at what they've been doing for say like the last eight weeks or so because we definitely want to start you at the right point. If we program and it's too aggressive, you're going to just have to make adjustments to kind of bring back. And, and that usually shows up pretty soon in a training plan. If you get too aggressive, because you're just not recovering from one workout to the next, you might notice that you're actually not improving in some of your workouts when you start getting like past a few weeks, rather than like having your pace increase at a given intensity, you might start having your pace actually stagnate or increase at a given intensity. Those are all signs that you're kind of overreaching and not hitting that stress recovery uh, back and forth uh, optimally. So once you kind of have that starting point, I like to, before I start any speed work is look at what kind of foundational development is in place. Cause that's what you're going to build the speed work on top of. If you have a good foundation built, the amount of volume you're able to tolerate from your speed work will also increase. So if you have a poor foundation, and jump right into speed work, 
you might have a situation where you've limited how much speed work your body's able to tolerate. And you've just kind of lowered that stress recovery uh, dosage that you are personally able to do. So for folks who are, have been running a bit, uh, but maybe that's not that structured. I like to look at like an eight to 12 week foundational phase before jumping into the speed work. And that's just going to be a lot of like easy pace run where you're, you're adding volume when appropriate, but starting from where you're at. So let's say, for example, Alfred, right now, you're kind of coming off an unstructured phase and you've been running three to four hours per week. That first week, we might kind of target, say, four to five hours because we do want to take you into a little bit more from what you are have been already doing to get that extra stimulus. But we don't want to overreach too much. And we're going to keep it all basically easy. Might add some strides or hill bounds at the end of a couple runs, just as a kind of a precursor to some of the future speed work. But it's going to be a little more monotonous, a little more easy foundational stuff there. And we're going to do that for like I said, eight to 12 weeks, I might add, add in some threshold work kind of near the end, the final few weeks, if things are moving along nicely. Uh, I would, I'd love to see this always like with uh, when I was coaching high school cross country and uh, seeing the, the, the different programs, like what they would do in the summer. Cause this is kind of like this off season base building phase where you have this like 12 week structure to kind of get really that foundation put in place because once the season starts, you're going to get start getting thrown into races, short intervals, long intervals, tempo runs and things like that. So at that point you want that foundation there. So a lot of times when I'm looking at foundational development, finding like a good cross country summer program that can kind of put you in that position is going to be going to be valuable. And if you have some good foundational development, you've got some experience with speed work and things like that. I think there's room for some like smaller lactate threshold type workouts near the end of it. I usually would keep it to maybe like once per week and in the range of like maybe 10 to 20 minutes of total volume spent at that intensity. Uh, it's sort of just like an extra piece of development that you can do if things are moving along smoothly by the end of that. Ultimately, though, to get to your actual question as to what kind of speed work would you do for this type of race? Uh, and you added some good context there. So you're doing a 10-mile race that you're targeting two hours for. So that's good that you kind of have those goals in place because a goal finishing time at a race, assuming it's appropriate for you know, what you have time for to prepare for, is, is good because you can use that to kind of develop some of your speed work, especially as you get closer to the race itself. I generally like to kind of follow a process with speed work where we're going to work on things that are kind of least specific to race intensity first, and then phase in and do more stuff that are more specific to the race as we get closer to it. So with your race being in October, you probably want to start your speed work at some point in kind of like the late summer. And when you do that, I would start with things that are going to be maybe a little least a little bit less specific to what you'll be doing on race day, but are still going to be beneficial. So for this particular time and distance, you're probably looking at like short intervals. Uh, I like to put short intervals between like 30 seconds and four minutes. If you're looking at it practically on paper, two to four minutes is probably the best target in terms of what we've seen in the research as being the time frame for short intervals to be optimal and the amount of volume you're able to spend at a quality intensity for those. And I'll still include some outside of that, the 30 seconds up to two minutes, especially if it's someone who's kind of 
new to speed work or if it's someone who really needs a lot of like flavor in their plan to kind of stay motivated, excited and, and try to execute it. So ultimately, I think like when you're getting to workouts that are kind of pretty short, pretty intense, you have to really kind of want to be out there and doing them. So uh, if you can get better quality out of your workout by kind of going under the shorter side of those, I think that's appropriate. Uh, but if it makes no difference to you, then two to four minutes might be kind of a good spot to kind of focus on for those. From an intensity standpoint, I'm usually looking at like the intensity that you could sustain for about 12 minutes if you were just to race all out or like do a, do a full push as evenly paced as possible. So regardless of whether it's a 30 second interval or a four minute interval, you're going to want to go that intensity. So it doesn't mean like if you're going shorter intervals, you push harder, or if you're doing longer, short intervals, you, you put, you push, you go slower. You want to hit the same pace. The metric you're looking here though, for the metric you're looking for here though, is the amount of volume you're spending at that intensity overall. So again, whether it's 30 seconds or four minutes, you're looking at that total amount of volume that you're able to do. And you're going to want to give yourself recovery between those intervals equal to the time frame that you're doing them. So using the polarized examples, again, if it's 30 seconds intervals, you'll want a 30 second recovery jog in between. If it's four minutes, you want a four minute recovery job jog in between. And that's just going to kind of normalize that same pace over that range of dis different time frames within that. And then you're going to, then I'm going to start probably adding in more, more threshold work, things like, uh, longer intervals, which I like to do usually between eight and 15 minutes, or you can structure them as a tempo or in two, which would just be consistent where let's say you just do 20 minutes at that intensity without any breaks in between. Really there's, there's no reason to necessarily go for one versus the other outside of whichever one you're able to get the most overall volume in and still recover from that's going to be the real driver here. So with these intervals, the difference between the short intervals is the intensity of them and the time between these ones, you're going to want closer to a two to one work to rest ratio. So if you're doing say 10 minute long intervals, you're going to want five minutes between them. The intensity that you're going to be targeting for these are going to be closer to what you could do for like say 45 to 60 minutes in a race day setting. So imagine like how fast you would be running if you were to do a race that would take you between 45 to 60 minutes. And that's the intensity that you're going to try to hit for those long intervals or tempo runs. So that's kind of another developmental piece that would be good speed work to include. And then finally, as I get closer to the race, I'm going to start implementing intensities that are specific to the race distance you are going to be doing. So this just can take some, some quick, easy math. If you have a specific distance and a specific time target, you can figure out what pace you need to average in order to finish that race at the goal time that can be your guide for these workouts. So for these, you're going to, since it's a little bit of a longer race, you know, two hours, 10 miles, I'm usually going to be structuring workouts for these to be a little bit longer in duration from a interval standpoint. So this could be something like two by 15 minutes at goal, 10, 10 mile pace or goal, two hour finishing time pace. And the difference between this one and these other ones is or those previous speed work workouts where they had the one-to-one -one work rest ratio and the two-to-one work rest ratio is going to be this one. I think there's more opportunity to manipulate the recovery time, especially if you don't have the flexibility to extend the actual volume of the workout. 
So for example, if you're doing two by 15 minutes at goal 10 mile pace, you could start out with a good, say seven to eight minute recover between those. And uh, let's say you're moving along and you start to normalize that a bit. You can make another step in your training load development without adding any extra volume to what would be like a 30 minute training load volume at that intensity by reducing the recovery time. So let's say you take that seven to eight minute recovery between those 15 minute intervals and you take it down to four to five minutes, or you take it down to two to three and you kind of close that gap between. And by the end, it might come, it might end up becoming closer to like a consistent effort with no break in between. You could essentially work down into that if you wanted to, but there's a lot of different ways you can do it. So I usually recommend that people look at when they're breaking up these intervals, look at it through a variety of different ways that are going to fit the schedule and the limitations you have within the rest of your life too. And a lot of times I'll be coaching someone and they'll have a specific amount of time per week or specific days where they have X amount of time to train. And when you have that type of structure, you definitely want to work within that. Cause if you're just overextending yourself in the running and it's bleeding into other areas of life, that will eventually put you in a position where consistency probably becomes an issue and you're not able to remain consistent throughout the plan. Uh, so I think I hit on most of what we'd want to go on there for, for Alfred's specific question, but Alfred, if I missed on anything, or if you have any follow-up questions, feel free to shoot them my way. Happy to touch on them in a future episode. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode sponsors include Bioptimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough with their Magnesium Supplement and Ice Barrel with their Cold Water Immersion Product. You can head to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors for links, details, and discounts. Also, all links are in the show notes. The next question came in from uh, Sequib Safdar, and he's curious about paleo versus keto diet for athletes. What's your preferred option and why? And then following up with taking carbs before, during, and after, what form does this take and how do you determine what is needed? Do you preload carbs the night before? Okay, so this is kind of a multi-part question. And the first part is, is an interesting one because I think when you look at it through the lens of performance, you're definitely going to be, anytime you're doing a dietary pattern that has limitations, you are removing tools from the table. So the first thing you should be asking yourself is, are the tools I'm removing by putting these parameters in place going to be advantageous for me or disadvantageous? And it's going to depend on the person. So in, to some degree, I like structured dietary practices because they give people a foundation to work from or something to some scaffolding essentially to stick to. That's going to probably keep them more consistent, assuming what they pick is something they can sustain and adhere to long-term. So the first thing you should be asking yourself here is, is this dietary approach something that I could do for the rest of my life? If the answer is no, I would consider maybe revisiting it or at least looking at it through that lens that, Hey, this is something that I'm not sure is going to be sustainable for me long-term. So I need to keep an open mind about making alterations along the way or in the future. If it turns out that I just can't, for whatever reason, stick to this particular set of parameters. When we get into the specifics of the question, when we're looking at just the paleo diet and the ketogenic diet with endurance athletes, you're going to take less tools off the table 
with a paleo style of eating because a paleo style of eating, although it limits the types of foods you're picking from, it doesn't necessarily limit the macronutrient targets you could have. So you could follow a paleo diet that's very much moderate to high carbohydrate, and you can find a, follow a paleo diet that technically is a ketogenic diet. What you can't do is follow a ketogenic diet that has moderate to high carbohydrates in it. I mean, you've basically chosen to pull that tool off the table from a macronutrient standpoint. So that's going to be the big difference in my opinion, when we're looking at athletes and performance with these two dietary habits. So things to consider, and I've worked with people who follow a strict ketogenic diet and training for an endurance event, and they are very consistent. They enjoy that way of eating. It really helps them stay dialed in and consistent with their own nutrition. A lot of times it's helped them hit what they would consider their goal, optimal weight. Uh, it's helped them have, have just a better quality of life from their relationship with food. So that person may see improvements beyond what they were doing previously because of these variables that that dietary practice helped them improve that go above and beyond any deficit they're creating by removing carbohydrates from the equation in terms of what tools they have available to them. So there's always going to be examples of people who thrive, even with restrictive dietary approaches that on paper, maybe look counterproductive to performance. Uh, I usually just recommend that just be taking an honest look at like why you're doing it and what you're trying to get out of it. And ultimately like, how does it impact your quality of life? Because, you know, for the most part, when we look at things like training for endurance events, these are like great ways to stay healthy and fit, but aren't necessarily the end all be all for, for the majority of us out there doing it. They're a part of our life, not the whole thing. So taking that into consideration is, uh, is also worth doing. If, if we're using the word keto diet a little more loosely, and we're including that as kind of just a term to refer to low carbohydrate, which is kind of what I would put myself in, in terms of the dietary practices I follow, uh, you open up the door a little bit. So now you kind of have a scenario where it's not, it's probably still, it's still got more limitations on how many carbohydrates you're going to be able to get relative to a paleo diet, but it's going to be a lot more closely aligned in a lot of cases, or you have a little more flexibility in how much carbohydrate you bring in. So that would be maybe a little more of an interesting piece to, to look at would be like a more general low carbohydrate approach where you're able to uh, not restrict your carbohydrates as, as tightly as you would on a strict kind of clinical ketogenic diet, which a lot of people are going to find as like 50 grams of carbohydrate or less per day, which is pretty low for even someone who's not very active. Now you add on to a, a, a consistent the training program, then, you know, you, that 50 grams looks even smaller relative to your total energy output and energy needs that you're taking in. So those are just things to consider too. The second part of the question is kind of just about what, or like how much carbohydrate to eat, uh, for what I do specifically, I believe is how the question is worded. So the way I like to do it and the way that I'll usually start out with my coaching clients that are doing low carbohydrate diet is we kind of redefine a little bit of where kind of their baseline is to start from. So since we're introducing a structured training program, we have to consider that lifestyle change and how that would maybe impact the way that they're eating and the numbers of 
things like carbohydrates that are going to put them still within a low category, but not, uh, not so low that they're, you know, they're taking performance, uh, off the table to some degree. And for, for folks that are starting out, I generally start with around hundred to 150 grams of carbohydrate per day at baseline. And then we will follow kind of their performance and their adaptations and kind of how those things are going and flex that up or down based on what they need. So we might hit a phase in their training where we're focusing on short intervals, like those 30 second to four minute ones I was talking about in the previous question for those type of workouts, those tend to be just more closer, high intensity to high intensity, and therefore are going to demand more glycogen for them. So if we're starting to like kind of increase the volume per week spent doing those, we may just want to cluster more carbohydrate around those particular workouts. Typically you're not going to be doing more than maybe a couple of those sessions per week. So it's not like you're trying to fuel that lifestyle every day of the week. You're trying to fuel it for those couple workouts that you're doing. So this is where I like to kind of remove myself from thinking of nutrition as a one day thing where like I do this every day and this is my limitations. And I start start to try to pull it out more like a two to three day window where let's say on Monday, you're doing short intervals for that day, like the night before, during the workout, before the workout, right after the workout, I might concentrate a higher than average amount of carbohydrates for that person who's following a low carbohydrate diet with the intent that with that higher intensity workout is going to come rest and recovery after it in most cases, which gives us an opportunity to go below average and then average out whatever our target carbohydrate number is going to be over the course of say two to three days versus being consistently at one point, all three days, and then having more than you need on some days, but less than you need on others. I find that to be maybe a little more useful in most cases than trying to kind of be super consistent with exact amount of carbohydrates each day, regardless of whether it's rest or short intervals or whatever other workouts you might be doing. Uh, so general rule of thumb there is I think like when you're looking at whatever average number of carbohydrates you're aiming to target, uh, just be a little more open-minded about when you're having a very like, polarizing training week, uh, that you're looking at it through that lens as well, that if each day physically is quite a bit different than the next, then it's okay to have each day's nutritional outlook be a fair bit different than the next and kind of each to the intensity that you're training for that day is another way to look at it. So in my own training, you know, there are days where I'm going well above 150 grams of carbohydrate and there's, it's not too often, but there are some days where I'm almost doubling that. But then there's days where I'm completely resting. I might be taking even a deload week where I'm reducing volume and intensity for an entire week and just letting everything kind of catch up. Or it might just be a random rest off day in the middle of the training plan where I'm going quite low, maybe even ketogenic low for, for that day. And then it's all kind of going to average out to that target number that I'm looking for. Uh, in terms of just like how this actually ends up playing out when I'm working with folks, it really just depends on the person. I've had people where we hit it right on the head out the gate and that target baseline of say hundred to 150 grams of carbohydrate tends to be like a pretty good number for them. We're hitting the workouts we're making the improvements we're looking for. Uh, they're, they're enjoying the way that they're, they're eating and they're, they don't have any complaints on that side of things. 
and we're just kind of keep chugging along. And then there's other folks I've worked with before where it, we assume it's a good idea for whatever reason. And once we get into the training, notice that we're not moving the needle the way we want to from a performance standpoint and start titrating in more carbohydrates. And I've had clients walk, walk all the way back up to moderate, moderate to even high carbohydrate in the past. Uh, I've had some where we reduce further. Uh, usually that's more of a kind of a lifestyle decision than it is a performance decision. Uh, if I'm looking at it from just like the odds that it happens for, for me personally, when I'm working with people, but it's not, it's not completely void of, of, uh, of what happens from, from what I've seen. So I think that's it. That, that does it for these questions. Like I mentioned in the beginning, if you have questions or topics you'd like me to touch on in the solo episodes, feel free to shoot them my way. You can do that at hpopodcast at gmail.com or on my social media channels. You can find me on Twitter at ZBitter, Instagram at Zach Bitter. And then there's always my kind of main hub landing page where I have everything from the podcast, social media links, contact information, and things like that at zachbitter.com. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks. If you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think.